0: So um, I hope this lectern isn't a bit uh, off it for you, so occupational hazard, and I, I find it easier to stand and uh, pretend I can lecture. Um, <laughs> it, it just uh, does help me, uh, especially these days. So <clears throat> in a TV interview I saw, after becoming leader of the National Party, Christopher Luxon was asked by the uh, interviewer, who I think was hoping to flush out his Fundamentals and Bedfellows, what church do you attend? And Luxon replied, none. I haven't belonged to a church for about five years. You don't need to go to church to be a believer, to be a Christian. So in one sense, he is obviously quite correct about that. And many of us have been in the same situation, I'm sure. Um, You don't need to belong to a church in the sense of a particular denominational grouping in order to be a Christian believer. But theologically, you can't be a Christian without belonging to the Christian church, which is the very body of the risen Christ in this world. And practically speaking, at least as far as the New Testament is concerned, you can't be a member of Christ's body in some theoretical sense alone in the sense of subscribing to a particular set of private religious beliefs. Instead, at least in the New Testament era, it entailed belonging to a tangible community of witness, worship, service, and accountability, whatever shape that may take. So, Luxon's answer um, reflects something that's very familiar to us. It's a a postmodern kind of preference for what one English sociologist has described as belief without belonging. That's how she characterises the current sort of religious mood uh, in the United Kingdom and and elsewhere in the West. Belief without belonging, which involves the reduction of belief or the reduction of faith to personal beliefs. And usually in our secular age, the belief is... As simple as, do you believe in God? And that's, the, that's the, the key belief that people are looking for. The reduction of personal faith to that belief in God, rather than a shared commitment to a distinctive way of life and set of relationships. This growing preference for belief without belonging is partly driven, I think, by the hyper-individualism of late modern Western capitalist society which, as we see camped around Parliament at the moment, cherishes individual autonomy and freedom of choice above all else. It's partly driven by that individual, individualism, it's also partly driven by a deep disillusionment with, in fact, a positive distrust of, and maybe even more a visceral dislike for, the record of the institutional church in a secular age and that is totally understandable I mean I sometimes thought that the two things that have done most to damage the cause of the gospel in our day is the institutional abuse in the Catholic Church and the right-wing capture of evangelicalism in the United States I think that has led to this, this deep cynicism towards the church so that encourages people to just choose to believe and not to belong. However, rather than embracing this very non-challenging idea of belief without belonging, I think what we really need is a deeper sense of belief as belonging, belief as discipleship, and of discipleship as irreducibly relational and underta- undertaking that necessarily involves belonging to Christ and to one another. And I think that's the best framework for us to try and understand what we are about in this little community of Mosaic. The issue is not whether we are or whether we aspire to be a church in some formal sociological sense or even in some innovative missional way. It's about recognising that this small community is a valid tangible expression of the church, of Christ's body in our particular historical setting and how belonging to one another in this communal context that we have is a vital ingredient of discipleship. So when we talked about this uh, retreat at one of our core meetings, the kind of agreed goals that we came up with for our gathering uh, included an opportunity to name and to affirm and therefore to give thanks for, the many small yet significant ways that we have experienced Christ's presence in our shared life over the past year. To actually name it, actually identify what it is that we have experienced with each other over the last year. To identify our hopes and challenges for the year ahead, uh, not as a, as a strategic goal setting exercise, which I have a notorious dislike of, but as a shared listening exercise for the voice of the Spirit. There's also a request that we don't just focus on fine-tuning our own internal issues, but try to get a feel for the larger historical context that we are in, what's happening in the wider church as it slowly comes to term with its numerical and cultural decline and the rootless secular age in which it uh, it, it dwells. Now, to do that, uh, in the space of one and a half days, of course, would be impossible and it's certainly well beyond my knowledge or expertise or energy, energy levels to be able to do that even in a half decent way. But I want to frame our conversation, particularly tomorrow morning and on Sunday, uh, to frame a conversation just in two very modest ways. One is to offer some high level reflections on the role and meaning of the church. Uh, within the overall story of Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God and its implications. So that's my goal tonight. And then tomorrow night, to offer some reflections on the nature of the post-Christendom context that we inhabit and some of the lessons that maybe the church in the pre-Christendom period, I mean, going back fifteen or 1,600 years, I'm saying here, uh, perhaps some lessons for how the church coped Uh, before Christendom came on the scene, that may be relevant to help us understand the plight of the church uh, today. So, that's the introduction. It's often said that the day of Pentecost was the birthday of the church, the time when Jesus' discombobulated group of followers were empowered by the Holy Spirit and charged to bear witness to him in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Thereafter, almost the entire New Testament is devoted to tracing the growth, the spread, and the multiple challenges, both internal challenges and external challenges, that this new Messianic movement faced. From the very beginning, the most common word that they used to describe the new Messianic community that they had formed was the word Ecclesia, which is translated into English as the word Church. So when we talk about the Church, we're talking about the Ecclesia. So in Acts 8, one, it speaks of how a severe persecution began against the Church in Jerusalem, the Ecclesia in Jerusalem. And that was probably the first group to use this term to describe uh, itself. I think the most important thing for us to note, at least for us to note, is that this word never refers to a building or a sacred place or a centralised organisation. It never refers to a building, a place, or a centralised organisation. All that came later. Quite a bit later, actually, but it came later. It always refers to a localised gathering or assembly or congregation of believers you know, on our YouTube people, meeting for a sacred purpose of witness, of prayer, of worship and instruction. Uh, this word ecclesia was perhaps chosen because uh, the Hebrew equivalent of it is used in the Old Testament to refer to the assembly or the meeting of the congregation of Israel. So when Israel got together for a purpose, it was the it was, the, you know, it was the, the community, the ecclesia that gathered. The word synagogue is used in the Old Testament, it's in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, also for this purpose. The word synagogue actually means a, a calling together, bringing together. So the first Jerusalem Christians after the day of Pentecost could have quite naturally and quite easily decided to call themselves the synagogue of Christ. There'd be no problem had they done so. And there's one verse in the New Testament in James, actually, which does use the word synagogue to refer to the, uh, the, the Christian community. But they didn't use that word. They chose the word ecclesia instead, partly because the word synagogue had become increasingly uh, associated with a dedicated building and in a set of authority structures that these early believers did not have. So what Paul calls the church of the living God always in the New Testament refers to a tangible community of believers meeting in a particular geographical location which for hundreds of years for hundreds of years met in private homes or domestic dwellings typically around a meal I say a meal table but they probably didn't sit at a table but they gathered around food Uh, the word they, they didn't have purpose-built halls or places of worship. It was always a group of people who gathered in a domestic setting and who regarded themselves not as an organisation, but most typically as brothers and sisters in Christ, members of the same and increasingly diverse family. So Alan Crider, early church historian, writes, throughout Christianity's first four centuries, the church was primarily... A domestic phenomenon so you can see these these sort of things that i'm I'm pointing out uh, many paul's verses but take the, the example of first corinthians 1 for example when paul writes to the to the uh, the corinthians he says to the church of god that is in corinth to those who are sanctified in christ jesus called to be saints to be set apart ones together with those who in every place call on the name of our lord jesus christ both their lord and ours, so in short, the word "church" in the New Testament, I think, if I'm right, is fundamentally a relational or familial term, not an organizational or institutional category, it describes those who are personally related to Christ and to others who share that relationship to Christ, and who together, as a gathering, as an assembly, as a community embody and experience Christ's living presence in the world through his spirit. According to Acts, the young church in Jerusalem grew very rapidly in size, with several thousands of converts frequently being mentioned uh, in the narrative. It also grew geographically spreading out from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria to the major cities of the Mediterranean region, even to Rome itself. And probably it was just in a few years of the day of Pentecost, it reached Rome. So Acts frequently speaks about the, the, the growing size of this community. But on a larger imperial canvas, it remained a relatively small and socially insignificant movement distributed across hundreds of small house churches, each probably containing just a few dozen members at most because, you know, people didn't live in big houses. So there was probably a physical size uh, to the number of people you cram into your church. And so the church of Rome, you get this feeling from Romans 16, because it goes through and ticks off all the, the leaders. These were lots of little house churches across the city that bore a, a connection with each other. They were probably quite diverse, and there's tensions between them over certain theological points, but there wasn't one large sort of St. Paul's in Rome that they all went to. But it was still, in terms of what a Roman uh, politician or, or, or um, a Roman historian would look at, it just was really just a tiny drop in the ocean, in terms of the of the uh, the movements of the day. And yet, in this really struck me when I was doing the preparation for this talk, just how remarkable this is, that Paul could speak of these small, fragile, powerless communities networked together in a very loose kind of network. He could speak of these churches not only as the historical fulfillment of God's centuries-long covenant purposes with Israel, that Israel's history had now reached us as, as sort of a denouement, the creation of this kind of community. But even as the cosmic revelation, to use the language of Ephesians 3, the cosmic revelation of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, now made known through the church to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. You know, so wow. <laughs> yeah, talk about meekness and majesty. These tiny fragile, marginal communities of faith for Paul are a manifestation of God's cosmic triumph before the principalities and powers in heavenly places. Now it all began, for sure, on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out on the 120. But the day of Pentecost wasn't really the birthday of the church, it was more the graduation day, or the inauguration day of a community that first came into existence during Jesus earthly ministry because the very first thing that Jesus did after launching his public ministry was assemble a small group of disciples to join him and support him on his mission this group became the nucleus of the post resurrection church me on the on on the clip the rock upon which jesus said to peter i will build my ecclesia So let's go to the beginning of the beginning. If Pentecost was the beginning, well, what's the beginning of that beginning? Well, it goes right back to the very start of Jesus' ministry in Mark chapter 1, and the text is uh, there on your handout. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God, saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen, of course. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Went on a little further, and he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their their, their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, And followed him. So, Mark begins by summarizing Jesus' message, his proclamation, and it consists really of of two kinds of assertion. On the one hand, there was the announcement of something God was doing. The times were filled, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's just a statement of fact. And then, on the other hand, there was a call to a response to God's initiative. Therefore repent and believe in the gospel. In saying that time is fulfilled, Jesus is claiming that what God's people had been longing and hoping for for centuries was it was at last now coming to pass in rural Galilee. The time of waiting was up, the time of fulfillment had arrived, this future age was dawning. God is now at long last, Jesus is saying manifesting. Is healing, restoring rain on earth as we have been longing for, for hundreds of years. So Jesus, where where is this happening, and how is it happening? It's an incredibly audacious claim to make. Well, it's happening in and through, the person, the presence, and the activity of Jesus Himself. He is the kingdom that has arrived. He is God's anointed bearer of God's future healing rain. And the response that he required to this message is summed up with the words repentance and faith. So repentance is not just a change of mind, although that's the the literal, I want to say literal meaning of the Greek word metanoia, but it's not just changing your mind or your opinion, it's not just a feeling of remorse. The word repentance in the prophetic tradition of of a uh, of, the, of Judaism designates a wholehearted change in the direction of one's life. It involves a turning away from an existing way of life with all its commonplace assumptions and allegiances and values and ambitions and priorities, turning away from that and turning towards a new way of life, consistent with the justice of God's reign, which involves a transformation of one's allegiances and values and ambitions and priorities. So repentance is a much more robust word than just feeling sorry for your bad deeds or changing your mind about who this person is. And the word faith is not just a set of intellectual beliefs, but it involves this radical entrusting of oneself to Jesus and to his enterprise as the total horizon of meaning and purpose. Now, my suggestion is that the reason why we, after Jesus announces this, this message in Mark 1.15, we get the story of the four fishermen being called into discipleship. The reason for that is that their response to Jesus demonstrates the radical nature of the repentance and faith that Jesus, Jesus was looking for to establish this community of the kingdom. Because for them it entailed, when you read the text carefully, it entailed a break with three fundamental areas of their existence. They left their boats and nets, which for a first century fisherman, of course, was the means of livelihood and economic security. They left their hired servants in the boat. Their possession of social power and control and status, their standing in the eyes of others. These weren't the poorest of the poor. They could hire others to work for their fishing business. And they left their father (coughs) in the boat as well, their father or their family, which was the primary source of identity and belonging and and obligation. And that was probably the most demanding breach of all that Jesus required of his followers to actually walk away from the family uh, to embrace the kind of mission that he was um, launching, uh, launching out on. So clearly joining Jesus' community at the very beginning was a very costly business. And the question is, why did it have to be so costly? Why did Jesus demand such a comprehensive conversion? Why such a decisive break with life as usual? Well, there's one line of interpretation that says because he thought the end of the world was coming in a few years and didn't matter about having to hold down a job and look after your father in the boat and so on because God's kingdom was going to break in and uh, everything was going to be um, blown away. But I think a better explanation is that Jesus wanted his company of committed followers to serve as a symbolic demonstration a living, breathing, audiovisual display of the way that God's kingdom lays claim to the whole of one's life, and it requires a radical revaluation of everything one is and one does, and a radical revaluation of the prevailing standards of the wider society and culture around you, around, around oneself. And that really becomes the focus of Jesus' subsequent teachings. When you look at the sorts of things that Jesus taught his followers, it often falls into these three areas that they had to make the break with their existing life uh, in order to be part of his community. So they, they broke with their possessions and their livelihood because within the kingdom community, a new attitude applies to wealth and material security. And this is probably the biggest emphasis in Jesus' teaching, uh, is his teaching on 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 wealth and material um, security. So you know the story, remember the story of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and asked to join uh, join the crowd. And Jesus said, uh, this is a bit of a summary, he said, sure, that's fine, just go and sell all you have and give to the poor, then come and join the crowd, the, the, the company. And the rich young girl's face fell, and he turned and went away, uh, dissuaded because of the impact that following Jesus would have on his bank balance. And then the story goes on, just after that happened, it says, Jesus looked around and said said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said to them again, (laughs) Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With people it is impossible, but not with God where all things are possible with God. The break with the hired servants shows that in Jesus' community, a new approach to social power and coercion and violence and hierarchy and status applies. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are supposed to rule over the Gentiles, that's the Romans, lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. And, you know, the, the original text is very, just a couple of words there, it's like, not so with you. It's really, a, a really quite a strong sense, not so with you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man also came not to be served, but to serve. And give his life as a ransom for many. And the break with the family shows that within the kingdom community a new concept of family and kinship exists. We talked about this a little bit when we looked at the story of Mary uh, before Christmas. His mother and his brothers came and standing outside they sent to him and called to him, and a crowd was standing sitting about him. They said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother? And my brothers. Looking around those who sat about him, he said, Here are my mothers and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. So, in short, embracing the kingdom of God required a radical re examination of all existing relationships spiritual, social, political and economic and the messianic Ecclesia the messianic community is supposed to be a living proof that a new way of life based on radical love is in fact possible that it really is possible for a community to march to a different drum of course the tragedy is that when society looks at the institutional church it often sees a pallid reflection of itself, including its own addictions to money, sex and power. A rediscovery of the real heart and and cutting edge of what Jesus meant by the kingdom of God, I think, is fundamental to the church uh, rediscovering its vocation in the world. So just to uh, draw this to an end, According to the New Testament, God's restoring reign on earth has begun in Christ and one day it will be completed when God makes all things new in the afflicted creation. In the meantime, as we look for that future restoration, the task of the believing community, whatever its size and location, the task of the church, it seems to me, is essentially fourfold. The first is to be the first beneficiaries of God's restoring power in Jesus. The first to benefit from the kingdom's liberating presence and therefore to be a sign of hope for others. The first fruits of redeemed humanity uh, is not to be a sign of damnation for the rest, but a sign of hope for the rest secondly i think the church exists as a guardian and proclaimer of the story of what god has done in jesus we are entrusted with the story the true story and the church's task is to tell and to retell that story down through the generations uh i don't know whether the name stanley howast means anything to you but he's one of the most famous christian ethicists uh of of our time, although he's probably now into his early 90s, I would guess, Um, he once said that the only thing that makes the church different from any other group in society, uh, from the Rotary Club or the Lions Club or the Karate Club or whatever, the only thing that makes the church different is not its piety, it's not its moral virtue, It's not its charitable deeds because all those things can be found in other groups as too. The only thing Halwa says that makes the church different is the story around which it gathers. The story of God's work in Christ. Thirdly, I think the task of the church is to be a preview or a foretaste of God's future society in the midst of the present evil age, to use apocalyptic language, a microcosm of what God intends for human society as a whole. In other words, to be a community that strives, at least strives, to embody in its own life and relationships and values and practices the restorative reconciling, healing character of God's reign. To be a society where people actually can live in peace with each other. And thirdly, fourthly, it is to be an instrument Uh, for God's ongoing work in the world, an agent of reconciliation and justice and peacemaking and forgiveness in a violent and very cruel world. Or to put it really simply, church is supposed to be a community of worship, witness, service and accountability, primarily bringing glory to God, but also hope to the dying world around us. And last thought, none of this, these four big tasks, which seem enormous, none of this requires statistical or organisational clout. The New Testament churches lacked both. They lacked numbers and they lacked power. And yet they still flourished and had an enormous impact. And we're still here today, and I'll talk much more about that tomorrow night, I read an article a few months ago on trends in church membership in the United States. The article pointed out that the average size of a congregation uh, in the US uh, is steadily declining. So it's now 70. The average size of a, you know, average right across the board is now 70. Uh, 20 years ago it was 135. So uh, the size of the average church is uh, dropping quite drastically, actually. But the majority of church goers go to large churches, and the large church is a church over 400. So while congregations are, are dropping, the majority of people who go to church actually go to the big, big, mega churches. So They're 400 mega church, that's so sort of a busy church, but it's, um, it's, getting, it's getting bigger. The analysis in this article concludes, and I quote, Americans are being sorted into two kinds of churches, mega churches and mini churches. I think we tend to see large churches as a sign of success. And I'm sure many pastors long for their church to become bigger because that shows that it's working. But the larger the church, the more likely it is that the majority of attendees are spectators or consumers, rather than active contributors. In many churches, however, as one pastor of one mini church puts it and again, I quote, relationships matter more than the spectacle of Sunday morning. And perhaps the fragility of the mini church, the fragility of small groups, the fragility of the church, perhaps that's actually a normative part of being a church. As another pastor in this article puts it, and again I quote uh, from her words, with 50 or 60 people, there is a buffer between you and the abyss. When you get to 10 or 15 people, there is no buffer. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Well, maybe that's what it's supposed to be like. I read another article in that uh, Catholic journal, Commonweal, is a more radical Catholic journal, uh, had a, 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 an article on about a dozen religious communities in the Catholic order, Catholic church. So the Catholic uh, church has had a long history of religious communities and religious orders that sort of lie alongside parish churches. And this was an article about a dozen of these communities all around the world, uh, extremely diverse, but the, the, the author said that every one of them, every single one of them, commented on the fragility of their community. That was the common theme, was the fragility of the community. They all know, knew that tomorrow this might not be here anymore. Now, maybe that's, Maybe that's the way it's supposed to be. Because certainly Paul saw the fragility of the churches in his day and the fragility of the people that made up the church, as evidence that divine power was at work in this incredible text in 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, one of the verses of this I had actually printed out on my study wall because it's just, to me, it's just the most astonishing string of genitives <laughs> um, that uh, just is, it s- says it all really in terms of what uh, Paul apprehended about Jesus. Paul said, we do not proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For it is God who said at creation, let light shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I like to reverse that sentence, you know, in the face of Jesus Christ, we see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And then he says, but we have this treasure in clay jars so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies.